All right. Good morning, everyone. I'm glad you're all here, whether you're in person, online, watching this later. Um, like I said, Paul's out sick, unfortunately, so I'm here hopefully bringing uh, the Word of God to you. Um, today we're going to continue the uh, series that Paul started last week out of Haggai. Um, we're going to focus on verses 5 through 11. But before we do that, I actually want to go back a little ways um, to the book of Ezra, um, which actually recounts the history that led up to the point of needing Haggai for the Israelites. Um, so as Paul mentioned, the Israelites were in Babylonian captivity, um, ripped from their land. Um, when Babylon came in, they destroyed the temple, left it in ruins, um, stealing all of the treasures and artifacts from it and taking it somewhere else, and then uprooted the Israelites out of there and spread them across the kingdom. Um, but before Haggai comes, the Persians actually come, conquer Babylon, and the Israelites are now in captivity under Persia, which may sound like it's just another kingdom, just another ruler over Israel. Um, but there's actually something special about what happens when the Persians conquer. Um, starting in Ezra chapter 1, I'm going to read the first four verses for you. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me with building him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. You see, when Persia conquered Babylon, the king at the time, King Cyrus, God moved Cyrus. He told Cyrus, I want my temple rebuilt. This was for multiple reasons. One, to fulfill the prophecy that Jeremiah gave the Israelites, but also to further get us closer to the point of Christ's return or Christ's coming. Um, so God moves Cyrus and says, let my people go back and rebuild the temple. And Cyrus actually takes it a step further. Later on, we see that Cyrus after he gives this declaration, tells the Israelites, return to Jerusalem, return to your home city, and rebuild the temple to your God. And then what Cyrus does is he sends equipment to assist them in rebuilding the temple. And he tells all the Israelites who don't go back, he says, send them with supplies. That way they have what they need to rebuild the temple. And then he also goes and gets all the artifacts that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon stole from the temple and returns them to those grounds so that they can be put back in the rightful place. So God moves this new king over the Israelites' um, exile to basically give them the best thing they could ask for while still being in exile. They're being returned to their land, to their home city, to rebuild the temple of their God that they can be in communion with him again, give sacrifices to him again. And it's also being partially funded by this king over their exile, the person who rules over them and isn't letting them be a sovereign nation is funding their ability to worship their own God again. This is about the best case scenario they could ask for. So 
there are about, there's, according to Ezra, 49,897 people that go back to Jerusalem. And when they arrive, the first thing they do is they take what they've got and they give this offering of materials and robes and supplies specifically for the rebuilding of the temple. And then they settle the surrounding towns. It shows that instead of settling and trying to get their footing and then saying, this is what I have left over for the temple, they instead give to the temple and then say, well, this is what I have left over to settle so that I can then work on the temple. So their priorities are in line right now uh, with what God has called them to. And then the first thing they do within that first year is they go and they say, we need to rebuild our altar so that we can bring entirely burnt offerings and start celebrating our festivals again. So they rebuild the altar amidst all the rubble that is the temple, exactly where the altar was. And they begin bringing entirely burnt offerings every day. They begin celebrating all of their festivals, um, reviving all of their customs again. And while this is going on, they're gathering all the supplies that they can rebuild the foundation. So within that second year that they're back in Jerusalem, the second month, um, they have all the supplies and they start to rebuild the foundation, clearing out all the rubble and laying a new foundation that the temple could be built upon it. And once this happens, they begin to dance and cheer and praise God because they can see it coming together. The mission they were sent for, they're now making progress. They've got an altar. They've got a clean foundation, a stable foundation to build the temple upon. Well, news of this comes out and the surrounding cities hear about it. And these cities, um, we see in second Kings that the Israelites had sent missionaries basically to them to have them worship their God, trying to convert them. Um, and the surrounding cities do worship the God of Israel, but they continue to worship their other gods as well. Um, so they hear the temples being built and they come to the Israelites and say, we also worship this God. Let us help you. And the Israelites, being wise and knowing that these other people don't truly worship God in the way that God calls himself to be worshipped, say, no, this is our calling by God. We are going to rebuild this temple, and we are going to worship just our God. Um, and this aggravates the cities surrounding them, and they begin to try and persuade them not to rebuild. They try to just be a kind of thorn in their side. And this goes on until Cyrus is no longer king of Persia, and a new king comes in. Um, I can't pronounce his name, so I'm not going to try. But um, once this new king is there, the surrounding cities write a letter to him and vilify Jerusalem, making false claims that once the temple's rebuilt and the walls are rebuilt, they're just going to rebel and cause all sorts of issues for the region they're in. So this new king receives a letter and says, we can't have that, and sends a letter back saying, do whatever you need to, to make sure they don't rebuild the temple. So these surrounding cities get together and through a show of force, militaristic force, go to the Israelites and say, you're not going to rebuild this temple. And the Israelites see this show of force and immediately back off and say, okay, we won't. And for 15 years, they don't. They don't try to rebuild the temple. They don't try to appease to the king and overturn that edict he gave out. They don't try to, in the cover of night, gather supplies and make little progress by little progress. They don't try to fight back against them and say, no, this is our mission from God. For 15 years, they say, well, there's a roadblock, so I guess we're done. 
And that's when God sends Haggai to them. Um, I'm going to start in Haggai. I'm going to backtrack a couple verses and cover a little bit of what Paul did last week. Haggai chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns a wage does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own home. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land in the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. This is the main prophecy, the main drive that God leads Haggai to give to the Israelites. In verses 3 and 4, God calls them out. See the paneled houses that they're living in. These are made out of wood, likely wooden walls, wooden roofs. Um, and likely cedar wood, which was a luxurious resource for that area. So these Israelites, over 15 plus years, instead of rebuilding the temple of God, the mission that they were sent to Jerusalem to fulfill, they have instead built their own wealth and built themselves these luxurious houses when the temple was supposed to be the most luxurious place in Jerusalem. And God goes on in verses 5 and 6, and he calls out their way of living. He calls out exactly what they are doing. Verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. He's telling them, reflect on your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, and you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns does so to put them in a bag with holes. He's telling the Israelites they are seeking after food wine, drink, clothing, the most luxurious things they can find, and money. They're doing all these things. They're trying to find a purpose of fulfillment in life because they're not doing the purpose that God sent them to Jerusalem to do, the mission that they had. Instead, they are seeking the things of the world. And God is telling them directly, none of these things are ever going to fulfill you. None of these things are going to give you purpose. You can have all the food of the earth, but you will never have enough to be full. You can have the greatest drinks, the greatest wine, but you will never not be thirsty. You can have the most luxurious clothing and you will still be cold. And you can work thinking you will eventually have enough money to feel like you made it, but it will never be enough. There will always be that hole. There will always be that desire to have a purpose, to have fulfillment, and none of these things will ever fill it. And then God goes on in verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And he reiterates the mission to them. 
Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Again, he's reiterating the mission. He has called out their way of life that they are living right now, that they've been living for 15 years, not even attempting to do the mission they have been sent to. So God reiterates. He says, go to the hills, get wood, bring it back and build the temple. This is why you were sent. This is necessary. I had Jeremiah prophesy that this would be rebuilt. I need this built so that I can send Christ. Because if Jerusalem is not there, if the temple is not there, then the Israelites are not established for the Messiah to return and show that God is no longer in the temple, but he is with us. See, when Christ died and was resurrected, the curtain that separates God from us in the temple tore in two. That's something that cannot happen without a temple. And that's something that's incredibly symbolic in that God is no longer just in the temple behind this curtain that we can't experience him. But instead, Christ is sending the Spirit to us, that each of us are the temples of God. That each of us can worship with God one-on-one without a barrier. That doesn't get to happen if the Israelites don't rebuild God's temple. God then continues in verse 9. He says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own home. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God is telling them their punishment. But not just that. As we read through this, God is stripping away the rain. He's stripping away their farming, their, their ways of life. He's peeling off every aspect that they try to put in the way of fulfilling the purpose that they were sent. And if you look at this, he is essentially pulling away everything until all that remains is the Israelites and their fancy paneled houses and God's temple that lies in ruins still. Going so far as to say, the land and the hills, the grain, the wine, the oil, your food, your water, I'm going to call a drought on it. You're going to struggle to get these things until, I, until you do what I have called you to do. The one that stands out to me is that he calls for a drought on man and beast. The Israelites were um, family people, is the best way I can put it. Having many children is something that they saw as good and as something they should yearn for. And the only way I can interpret a drought on man and beast is that they were barren until they rebuilt the temple. And that their animals that they used for um, food, water, for sacrifices to God for their own sins were barren until they started rebuilding the temple. God was taking away the one thing that could possibly give them purpose outside of his will. The ability to both sacrifice to him and to have to grow their families. God was literally peeling away everything that they had put before him until all that remained, again, was them in their houses and the temple of God that laid in ruin, just an altar and a foundation. And again, 
Haggai came 15 years after the Israelites had a single roadblock, at a single moment of the world rejecting the mission that God had given them. And throughout that 15 years, nothing records that the Israelites did so much as lift a finger to try and rebuild the temple. God gave them patience for 15 years for this holy mission that they should have been 100% on board with. Um, I like to contrast this with King David. Um, so King David being the king of Israel and the one that kind of established the nation. Um, towards the end of his life, he was like, God, I want to build you a temple. I want to build you the most luxurious house possible. And God said, you have blood on your hands from the sin which David committed. So you can't build my temple. But your heir, your son, Solomon, he will build the temple. And David once he came to accept this, said, okay, if I can't build the temple, I'm going to go out of my way and spare no expense to get every supply necessary. So David, even when faced with holy intervention to not build the temple, he said, if I can't do that, I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to make sure that my son is able to build the greatest temple possible to you, God, and do so without having to put forth much effort, without having to try and seek out all this, all the supplies himself. Instead, I'm going to do everything I can in the boundaries which you've given me to build this temple. And this absolutely pales in comparison to the Israelites who, when faced with opposition, say, well, this, is not, this isn't worth our time. It's not worth our effort, apparently. So it shows a lack of faith on the Israelites' parts. Because throughout their history, a history they would have done well, the Israelites have been put into the wilderness for 40 years. They were put in exile by Babylon. Um, and this all came when they decided, well, we're just not going to do whatever God is calling us to do. We're going to stop worshiping God. But throughout their history, the times that they worshiped God, God protected them the entire time. They saw this when they were conquering the promised land. As they marched around the walls of Jericho, not having to raise a sword, and the city fell before them. God protected them as they went through that. God protected them as they left Egypt under his word, splitting the Red Sea that they could walk across it, and the Red Sea would come in and consume their enemies, keeping them safe. The Israelites had example after example found throughout the Old Testament that if they just had faith, that the mission they were doing for God was God's mission, and they had faith that he would protect them, then he would, because he gave them that mission. And yet these Israelites backed down immediately. This is summarized really well by Christ over in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 33. It says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Christ just got done talking about how the sparrows and birds of the sky, they don't worry about what they eat, but yet God still feeds them. And are we as people not more important than the birds of the sky? And then he says, and look at the flowers of the field. They're beautiful, but they don't worry about what they're going to wear. They don't worry about how they're clothed, but yet God makes them beautiful, even though tomorrow they're going to be thrown in the fire. And are you not more worthy and important than a flower in the field? 
So if God provides for the birds in the sky and the flowers of the field in such a way, how much more will he provide for you? At which point Christ says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. All these same things that Haggai, that God through Haggai is telling the Israelites, I am taking away until you fulfill the mission I sent for you. God is telling them, I will provide all of these things, everything you need in life, if only you would focus on my calling for you, on building that temple. Which leads us to, like, what is the church, right? The church has one mission, one mission given by Christ, um, easily summarized at the end of Matthew where he says, go unto the ends of the earth, making disciples of every nation and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the mission of the church, the big C church, right? But that mission takes every possible role underneath it. It takes the mission of Crosspoint itself. It takes the mission of the God's calling on my life. It takes the mission that God has put a calling on each and every one of our lives. You see, when God gave the calling to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, it was not just to the architects that were going to lay out blueprints and say, this is how we put the temple back together. It was not just to the carpenters who were going to do all the woodworking. It was not just to the masonry workers working with the stone. No, it was to all of Israel, God's chosen people at that time, to go and rebuild the temple. And it didn't matter if you were in one of those high positions or if you were somebody who went and picked up rubble from the foundation and carried it off so that the others could come in and lay the new foundation. It didn't matter if they were the ones preparing food and feeding those working so that they could keep going and not have to worry about it. It didn't matter if they were the ones that were watching the children too young to help. Every single one of these roles was important and every single one of these roles was necessary for the temple to be rebuilt. And God called each and every one of them to go and rebuild the temple and to fulfill their part in it. So that brings us to the church. Our big mission is to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples. That, doesn't, that includes those who are called to be missionaries, to give up everything in their life, move halfway across the world, and just preach the gospel to those that have never heard it before. That includes those people. It includes people like Paul who are called to pastor churches, it includes people that are called to preach, called to evangelize. It includes all those people, but it also includes those of us. It includes those who are called to share Christ's love with the convenience store worker that they see every day. It includes those of us who are called to go when they see somebody crying, a stranger, and just sit with them and talk with them and be Christ to them. It includes everyone, every mission, no matter how small, no matter how big, it is all for the single purpose of making disciples of every nation, fulfilling the role that Christ has given us. So I want to pose a question to us, one to think about, one to contemplate on. As God said, consider your ways. What calling has God placed on us as Frostpoint, as families, as individuals? What calling has God given us that we have taken and ignored, that we have taken and run from, that we have taken and said, I will get to that when I have time, 
or that we started going down and faced the slightest opposition from the world is the world is bound to reject us and we said well i can't do that what calling has god placed on your life that you have rejected and you're running from as god said consider your ways i ask that each and every one of us examine our lives whether that's just today throughout this week sit down pray find that which god has called your life for it doesn't matter how big it doesn't matter how small what god has called you to do is for a purpose and that purpose is the mission of the church to save and change lives to go beyond ourselves and to share christ with the world um if the band wants to come up um i want all of us to just think about that too pray about that and if you know what that is that you've been running from that you've been ignoring i want to challenge you i want to challenge you that this stage can be an altar there's an empty row of chairs up here i challenge you to come forward and whether you pray alone or you come to me and pray or i'm going to have ali stand over there if you want to go and pray with her to where you're not coming up here i challenge you if you know what you're running from that you get up out of your seat and you step out in faith and you come and you surrender it unto God and you make amends for running from it and you commit yourself to fulfilling that purpose which he has given you. Again, it doesn't matter how big, it doesn't matter how small because every purpose is for the furthering of the kingdom. Every purpose is for the changing of lives, for sharing the love of Christ. And for every believer, we know just how important that love is. We know how life-changing it is to go to the Creator and be able to know where we're supposed to go, know what we're supposed to do, never have a moment of being truly alone because God will always be with us unto the ends of the earth, Christ said. So I challenge you this morning, consider your ways. What is it that you're running from that you need to come to God for? Pray with me. Lord, I come before you this morning. I thank you. God, I thank you that you don't play favorites. I thank you that you don't just call those to go and halfway across the world and evangelize to those who have never heard the gospel. God, I'm thankful that you call each and every one of us to an important role within your church and that you value each and every one of us as your chosen sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters and co-heirs with Christ. Lord, I thank you for that. And God, as I've challenged this church, challenged everyone listening to consider their ways, Lord, I pray that you would reflect that on me as well, that should I also be running from something, that you will reveal it to me that I wouldn't run anymore. And God, I pray that same thing for each and every person here, that you would convict them of whatever it is that they could be running from and just help them to see and know and have a clarity in their life. And Lord, be able to be fully in tune with you, seeking first your kingdom, your righteousness, Father, and just relying on you to give them everything else and take care of every other need. Lord, I pray for this church and I just ask that you move in it. God, that you reveal yourself in it and that you give purpose to everyone here and help them to see their purpose. 
Father, all we want to be is the hands and feet of Jesus. Lord, help us to do that. It's it's in the name of Christ, the one that has all power, glory, and honor from this point till the end of the days, Lord. It's in that name that I pray. I'm going to be up here with my mic off if you want somebody to pray with. Um, Again, I ask that you reflect on what God's calling in your life has been. If you want to stand and worship with us, stand and pray with us, I ask that you do so now.